welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast, presented by Exo Mountain Gear. This podcast and the gear that we produce at Exo Mountain Gear share the same purpose, to make you a more capable, confident, and successful backcountry hunter. This show is all about providing you with valuable information from experienced hunters. To learn more about the podcast or about our backcountry hunting packs, visit exomountaingear.com. Well, guys, welcome to episode 166. One of the most common questions we get has to do with scouting and finding animals and knowing that you're heading into a good area when you've never been there before. Our guest helps us break that down using digital resources, but with unique perspective. Our guest is Dr. Everett Hanna, and he's talking with us about the science of scouting. So Everett has a unique background in that professionally he is a wildlife biologist and he's also a hunter himself. And so he's used science and scientific resources and academic resources to help him in his digital scouting. So everyday guys like myself, not a scientist, not an academics, he's going to help us understand how we can use some of those resources, such as research papers, abstracts, and more to help with our scouting. So we can pair this information with Onyx Maps. We can look at the research that's been done in the field and use that data to help us be more successful in our hunts. And we're going to break all of that down for you in this episode. If you want to get in contact with Everett Hanna, you can catch him on Instagram at Dr. Wildlife Bio. Before we get into that, I want to remind you guys about the Tight Spot and Ripcord giveaway for this month, March of 2019. Just go to exomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. You'll see the giveaway link there where you can enter to win a tight spot quiver of your choice and also a ripcord arrow rest of your choice. Finally, thanks to Brandon Gregory for the iTunes review. Guys, we always love hearing your feedback, whether that's a review or an email to us directly, and we thank you guys for doing that. So Brandon, send us your shipping information. We want to send you some Exo Mountain Gear and Hunt Backcountry Podcast swag. Listeners, if you want to get in touch with us, you can leave that review. We'll check those out. Or you can just always email us directly to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Thanks as always for tuning in. Let's get into this conversation on the science of scouting with Dr. Everett Hanna. Well, Everett, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Really appreciate being here. Yeah, I'm excited about this one. Um, so just to give context, uh, you're a wildlife biologist, uh, up in Canada. So is that so full-time do you teach as a wildlife biologist then? Yeah, exactly. So I teach, uh, courses all related to wildlife biology. I mean, it's pretty diverse. So it ranges from everything from basic sort of identification courses for students in earlier years in the program, all the way up to things like species at risk management or population ecology and, you know, sort of the more applied angles of, uh, of wildlife biology. Okay. And have you been um, in higher ed the whole time? Like, so you obviously went, got your education. Did you go straight into teaching? Uh, kind of. I mean, I, I sort of, you know, my primary income and my, my sole income right now, because the uh, oil and gas sector is kind of low here, um, 
is from teaching, but I do consult on the side as well with a company called Great Bear Environmental Consulting. We do a lot of work in um, well, in oil and gas primarily, so a lot of seismic stuff with liquefied natural gas projects. All of those types of programs need uh, people like me to come in to either monitor or to, to first collect data about what sort of wildlife are in the area. And oftentimes we're providing like live mitigation. For example, some of the projects we worked on where we have you know caribou or wolves collared in those areas, we'll go around and fly helicopter surveys and uh, monitor where those uh, animals are at to try and mitigate on the ground effects live, you know, for crews that are out, say, slashing or cutting lines or whatever they might be be doing for those programs we're working on. So it's pretty varied that way. You know, I've always been primarily occupied or uh, employed rather in um, in higher ed, but I've also worked, I mean, across the continent with NGOs, uh, with state agencies. In fact, in the U.S., I've worked for both the North Dakota Game and Fish Department as well as uh, the Colorado Division of Wildlife at different times on uh, on other projects I've been with. And you, then you also mentioned you're the, the president of the Alberta chapter of the Wildlife Society. So I wasn't familiar with Wildlife Society. I'm assuming that's just a, a Canadian organization. But what's the context <laughs> there for U.S. listeners? Yeah, you know what? Actually, that's a great point you made <laughs> because the Wildlife Society is, is American, in fact. Um, they're based out of Bethesda, and uh, oh, okay. they have a sister organization called the American Fishery Society. And I, the reason I say is it's an important point is because I think a lot of times us bios are guilty of being self-serving and sitting in what we call our ivory towers and not doing a good job of connecting with the folks that were, you know, at least in state and provincial and federal capacity supposed to be ser- supposed to be serving. Um, the Wildlife Society is is an organization that's supposed to bring together um, wildlife scientists, and uh, really the mandate is to advance the use of science-based decision making with regards to wildlife resources. And that, that applies to both the U.S. and Canada equally. Um, I'm the president of the Alberta chapter, but we also have a national section, so the Canadian section. And then there is the parent society, which is the wildlife society overall. Okay. So that sounds like it's fairly, I don't want to say academic, but maybe scientific as well. It is, yeah. You know, one of our real things we focus on is uh, is student engagement, but we're certainly yeah, serving students that are in the sciences and the wildlife sciences already. We uh, we open our like we have actually have our conference, our annual conference in AGM next semester in Canmore in Alberta in the in the mountains actually. So I'm looking forward to that little trip. Um, we uh, we do open it to the public and we do th- things like public talks and we do outreach throughout the year. But really, yeah, the focus is sort of internal in that way. I would say in most capacities. Gotcha. Okay. So in terms of, I'm just curious in terms of working in higher ed and being in academia and then being a part of an organization that has to do with wildlife, but is more scientific, but you're a hunter. How is that perceived among those circles? Is that something that's common? Are you kind of like an outcast in a way, like the hunter (laughs) of the guy who's actually in wildlife sciences? How, how is that for you personally? Yeah, I would say no. I would say amongst, um, especially scientists who work in uh, and when we say wildlife, you know, wildlife biologists these days includes everything, everything from someone who's like an entomologist that works with insects in many cases, all the way up to someone who studies the traditional wildlife, like, you know, ungulates or waterfowl or game birds or whatever. So nowadays, um, there are a lot of wildlife bios who don't hunt, but, you know, historically wildlife bios were born out of like Aldo Leopold, right? He was one of the first right. wildlife bio- Profs, the first wildlife bioprof out there in Wisconsin. And that came from that connection between hunting and academia. So, you know, in my circle where I work in, um, and I, you know, primarily have studied game birds and game animals. Uh, no, most guys, most people, I should say, most people hunt um, and fish and, and a lot of them trap too. Like, you know, I came to trapping a little bit later in my life. I kind of just do it on the side here and there. But most of the people that I engage with prof- professionally are also uh, active resource users. So I wouldn't say I'm an outcast by any means. However, I will add a bit of a caveat that you know i'm originally from just east of toronto in ontario and moved west in 2015 uh, with my wife for a teaching position actually up north as i mentioned earlier we were up north of edmonton almost all the way up to fort mcmurray here in alberta for the last three and a bit years and um 
when I uh, came from the east to the west, there was a definitely a pointed difference in the proportion of folks that are working wildlife management here um, is much greater uh, than those that hunt and uh, you know actively use resources versus say in an eastern province like Ontario. So you've hunted in the U.S. as well, right? Yeah, I have lots. I mean, I'm planning a, a trip, a couple trips probably down there. I'm hoping a, uh, I guess it'll be a fourth year in a row. My dad and I do a, a, a turkey and trout trip down to Montana um, every spring right after final exams once I get my final grades in. Yeah. Uh, one of the downsides of working in this field is that you can't get a lot of um, solid pieces of time off once the semesters start up, in particular, you know, in the September for elk. So it's a real challenge. Usually I'm a weekend hunter when it comes to those times of the year, but once spring rolls around in class, they're done we're much more flexible with their scheduling. So I really try and take advantage of, uh, you know, turkey in particular. And this year I'm going to be uh, doing a spring bear hunt too. But yeah, I've hunted in the U.S. Um, a fair bit. Uh mostly i guess all for turkeys and then as i mentioned i'm gonna maybe try a little bit of uh archery antelope um in august because again it's ahead of the startup of the semester so i have some right. flexibility there yeah that's neat is it essentially as easy to hunt the u.s as a non-resident as it is to hunt other canadian provinces as a non-resident like say going across to bc for example yeah, except that you need an import form from ATF to bring your firearm across. So, I mean, okay. if you want to go bow, bow hunt, it's a lot simpler. So I'm looking yeah. forward to that. Although, you know, when you do apply for an ATF uh, form, I just sent my application off, say, a month and a half ago. I believe it's good for a year. So you don't have to do it each time you want to take it across. You can use that form for up to a year from when you get it, which usually hasn't applied to me because I've usually just gone for one trip per year. But, uh, you know, if I were to do multiple trips now that I live so much closer to the border, um, I can use that form in theory more than once and sort of, you know, get greater benefit from it. Hmm. Cool. Good to know. That was all the stuff I was personally curious about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's neat, man. It's cool to hear other people's experiences. And, you know, most of the folks I've talked to have been uh, lower 48 guys going up to Canada. So it's interesting to hear about that flip side. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I had a, a real bad hang up a couple springs ago. I, uh, you know, actually, you know, we used to have a registration here in Canada, unfortunately, and hopefully it never comes back for our firearms, but we did. And, uh, so you have these registration cards that have the serial number on it and the firearm description and all that. So when you apply for an import permit with ATF, you have to obviously indicate the specs on your fire firearm, but also the serial number. And so when I filled out my form a couple of years ago, I guess I didn't look at the receiver of my, uh, my shotgun. It's a Remington, you know, 870 for Turkey. <clears throat> I just looked at the registration card and I pulled the wrong one out for my dad's like old 870. Didn't know, sent it off to ATF, got approved because they don't check it out, got to the border and, you know, all set up, trucks packed. We got our, you know, everything ready to go cooler full of dry ice for the turkeys and whatever and some officer of course first time ever decides to check um the serial number on the receiver and compare it <laughs> to the import form anyways long story short we got hung up at the border for a day wasted a day of our trip and uh we were able to use a fax or a, a scan machine an email and scanning machine from a hotel we stayed at, at the border to get a quick approval from atf so nowadays when they do have email it's a lot quicker you don't have to fax things like when i first started 10 12 years ago they were not nearly as nimble as they are now but they turned it right around and we got it fixed and we got a heck of a story now as a result. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So they are pretty serious at times with that stuff. You do have to you know, make sure you got your ducks in a row. Yeah, for sure. Wow. So the primary reason we want to talk with you is about this idea of using science to scout. And uh, I'm just really curious. Obviously, you're uh, in academia and you understand the science of wildlife. But at the same time, being a hunter, um, how do you put that information that you can access uh, to work for your own hunts? And then how can we as hunters who aren't academic or scientific maybe 
begin to like learn from, access resources from that world to put to use on our end. So just like from a super high level, give us the basis for how or why you use science to scout for your own hunts. Yeah, for sure. So it starts from, I think, you know, whenever you want to go, especially if you want to go somewhere new or target a new species uh, or even a new population of a species in a new area or whatever it might be, you know, the question you always want to know is where are those animals at? Where are they going? What are they doing? And I think, you know, I know myself personally being out there, um, I still I have anecdote in my head all the time. I'm like, I wonder what they're doing right now. I wonder where they are. I wonder why they did that. You know, if I asked you any number of questions about things you've experienced in the field, you might have some ideas about why they're doing what they're doing, but it's really just based on anecdote. And, and that's fine. You know, hunters and farmers, probably the two alike are some of the most anecdotally rich cultures there are out there. But the real power of, of using science is that, um, in science, the recipe is to standardize and control for all those other things, the other what ifs that could be affecting the scenario in which you're sort of trying to understand things better. And so if you can take that science that's already out there, you know, the dream information that hunters wish they knew, like you wish, maybe some don't, maybe some don't want to take the allure out of it, but the best case would be from efficiency standpoint of, you know, seeing an animal would be, where is that animal right now? Put a collar on it and figure out where it is and go out there the next day. You know, you've probably seen some of these game cams they have now that have live feeds on them, uh, that send cell data to you. You know, I, you can think whatever you want about those. And I have my own, you know, personal opinions too. But the point is that's like sort of, that would be the, the best information you could get from an efficiency standpoint. In a lot of cases, you can look at science where um, they've taken the anecdote element out of it by standardizing as best as possible the way in which the information, the data are collected and answer the questions that you're sitting there, you know, in your stand or on your rock or wherever you're hanging out thinking about um, in a much more concerted but accurate way than what you would otherwise get by, you know, chatting with your buddies or looking at online forums or, you know, social media or whatever it might be. So the power, the power of science is that it takes out the uncertainty and really controls for it to give more precise information um, to questions that, I mean, all hunters want to know, honestly. Mm -hmm. So what, what types of like data are we talking about that might exist for that? Yeah. Well, I mean, a good example is, <clears throat> as I mentioned to you guys earlier, I moved down here to Southwestern Alberta in, uh, last July and um, I started hunting sheep. I'd never hunted sheep before at all. Actually, um, Alberta is pretty cool that way. It's over the counter for residents and there's four to called four fifths and, um, full curl zones. And, uh, down here where I'm at, it's a full curl zone, which <laughs> makes it even tougher. There's, you know, a couple pretty big, uh, pneumonia die-offs within the last couple decades. And so the populations are still kind of rebounding. Um, but in any case, uh, it was all new to me. So, you know, my, my wife would often say, oh, you're going sheep hunting again, you know, and it was, these were weekend efforts, which for anybody who's hunted sheep knows that's a really tough way to hunt sheep, sheep because it takes, you know, a day usually to get into sheep country if you don't have a horse, which I don't. Um, anyway, so I had to kind of figure out a way to, to do this more efficiently. And this is one of the cases, I mean, it's many cases I've done this at different places I've hunted. And so I, first thing I did was went on the internet and searched and looked to see what had been done um, for research so far. And actually because I have access to these journals, which, you know, some people won't, we'll talk, we can talk about this a little bit later on about open source versus, you know, paper use kind of databases. But um, I can go and look at journals and people, what they'll do these researchers is they'll mark sheet, for example, with collars They'll summarize the data and they'll produce what are called like polygons, which is really just a technical term for a shape um, in a mapping software kind of environment. And you can go in these apps like in here in Alberta, I use what's called iHunter and it's basically like an Onyx, you know, equivalent for Canada. I have like public lands layers and all that kind of stuff on there and I can go in in the pro version and I can draw polygons, shapes again <laughs> to keep it non-technical um, that match exactly the ones that are in these articles. So I can go and look at um, that spot when I go into the field by using my phone as a GPS, which I do, 
and and scout the spots where sheep are known to have been using uh, as a starting point as opposed to just going out there and you know walking around uh, blindly essentially which can be fun too but i think you know my thought is always i don't need somebody to point me to the animal just point me to where there's a potential of an animal being and i feel like this kind of you know helps you doing that so it's kind of defining their like home range or some sort of seasonal range at a time of year if you will Absolutely. And yeah, if you're dealing with things like, you know, we have some migratory and some non-migratory populations of elk here in southwestern Alberta, kind of similar to what you'd see in northern Montana, northern western Montana. Um, And uh, yeah, migratory corridors are really key too. like our elk are coming down out of the high country right around rut. And you want to know where they're going and when they're going through there, especially if you're going out hunting during the time when they're primarily moving, because that's when it's especially difficult to, you know, to run into them. And these types of studies are out there. There's all sorts of studies describing um, their movements in a real basic sort of descriptive sense like that with these, you know, shape features I mentioned earlier, the polygons, but also just in terms of like habitat selection, which is a really important part of the equation. If you search something and I pulled up some tabs here on my, you know, my computer in front of me for us to chat about. And I, I searched elk habitat use Idaho and there's a number of um, a number of hits that come up just in regular Google. The first one says elk habitat use relative to forest succession in Idaho. This is an article from 1983, and I went and looked at it. Um, this is one you'd have to pay to get at, actually, but you know, obviously I have access to it. But in each article, when they come up, they give you an abstract too. And in that abstract, it's just like an executive summary. It uh, it says like where elk are going and what they're doing. Like one of the statements from it. Um, Elk preferred to rest in areas over 400 meters from traveled rows in all seasons. Home ranges contain more foraging area, 35 versus 20%, and less thermal and hiding cover than present in the study area overall. In autumn, elk shifted to pull timber communities on mesic slopes. So right there, you've got three big pieces of information for where you're going to go. Guess what? Don't drive up and down the roads, which I don't do anyways. Maybe some people do, but get off. Get 400 meters at least away from a road. Uh, go look in mesic slopes in particular with these pole timber communities, you know, that type of forest if you're trying to find out. What is mesic slopes? Uh, that's just a type of soil formation, basically. I mean, I'm not a <laughs> soil yeah. scientist, but yeah. Okay, so it's like a, a soil, geology soil type. You got her, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, but don't, don't quote me on it. That's what I believe. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> yeah. So wildlife. even as somewhat as a wildlife science guy, sometimes you have to do interpretation, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I, just, I just go Google Mesic to make sure I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, but anyways, those are some examples. So like beyond just looking at physical you know, maps or whatever, which again, aren't usually available in the abstracts and articles you have to pay to access. So mm-hmm. you can look at these abstract things and actually get text descriptions of what they're doing. And this one in particular, you know, goes through their seasonal progression of habitat selection whether you're going out in the spring, the summer, or the fall. Another one, you know, I found was elk habitat selection on the Clearwater National Forest in Idaho. I was just focusing on, you know, to keep it exo-local, or at least American that way, because the audience, um, I looked at elk habitat selection in Idaho, and there's tons of articles that just describe everything they're doing. This one gets into the difference between what cows versus bulls less than two years and bulls greater than two years were doing, and what kind of habitats they're using in fall. So, like, this is, this is public, what I'm looking at right now. Anybody can search this for free and learn about what those different demographics within an elk population potentially in the spot you want to hunt are doing according to science. Hmm. So I'm familiar having hunted Colorado quite a few years. They actually, I think do a pretty good job at least showing you some data. I'm not sure how up to date it is, but for example, you can go through their resources. You can see um, like migratory patterns, which you mentioned, you can see summer range. And then I think what they call summer concentration areas, which are, I would presume just a more, you know, higher density concentration of the overall range. Right. Um, And they, so they just published that as part of their resources. Do you think, um, and I'm not saying that you're familiar with all what goes into that specifically, but 
say a state like Colorado publishes those resources, is that a good place to start? Do you think you can further like refine that by then going to like scientific or other resources that you've mentioned, like journals and summaries, or would yeah. you just rely like for Colorado if they show, okay, that's a summer concentration area, good enough type thing. Yeah. Well, what I, what I do is it's sort of multi-pronged, you know, and I'm actually doing this this year for my dad and I are trying to check out a new spot. I have a, a river jet boat and we're trying to do turkey hunting from the river jet boat this year along the Missouri and Montana. So, you know, I have to start from scratch this year versus the last three or four we've been and we're going to the last spot, same spot over and over. Um, I always have a, a few different ways to do things. Like I look at the science through the literature I sort of described. I always call bios in the areas and you guys down in the U S your state agencies do a heck of a lot better job um, than a lot of our provincial entities up here. Those, those state bios um, are super keen to talk to people who want to go hunt about where things are. I mean, I chatted with a guy out of um, Malta, uh, wildlife bio there just the other day about uh, his experience in this area with floating and looking and what he'd seen you know turkey wise and we chatted for 20 minutes about you know birds in the area um, and he was super helpful so I put that together with um, you know published uh, state agency stuff such as you mentioned in Colorado and another really important tool to use and this is just a general scouting tip that I do for going into new areas I always call local tackle and hunting shops and talk to guys. And especially, you know what, people are pretty tight-lipped when it comes to elk spots, for example. With turkeys in the West, you guys probably know this, not a lot of people chase turkeys, even though they're like the spring elk. For whatever reason, a lot of people don't like to chase turkeys. I don't know why. And so people are quite happy to disclose information usually. And, uh, you know, I put all of that together. So not necessarily relying on just one categorically. And Mm -hmm. I certainly wouldn't discount, you know, the state agency summary like what you mentioned in Colorado. What types of questions, whether it's a bio or kind of calling a local shop, as you mentioned, what type of questions are you going into that conversation with? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to tell them, you know, my intentions in terms of the time of year I'm hunting. I mean, with turkeys, you don't really get a ton of uh, like ecological variation in terms of what they're doing. You're basically hunting their entire rut, quote unquote. So they're going to be all kind of in the same spot. But, you know, when you do get into mountain birds, like in the West here, um, there is quite a seasonal progression in terms of how they move as the green up comes, as the snow melts, come back up into the high country. Like anyone who was in the West last year will know the spring came super late in the Northwest and here in Canada and Western Canada too. And so a lot of the high country spots we usually hunt were didn't have turkeys up in them. So talking to a bio can get a handle on um, what the movement patterns are like, their seasonal progressions and what they use as cues typically, even if they're just things that a human sees like, you know, this person started to plow the road this time of year, every, every year at that same time. And the turkeys usually start to head back up around there, you know, something as simple as that, those can be used useful information for me when I go into the field to look and say, okay, where are the turkeys likely at at that point? Cause it's all about, you know, predicting their behavior, given that you don't really know what they're doing. And I'd say it's really all about habitat use for me, um, with turkeys, at least anyways, you know, with something like elk uh, or sheep for that matter, you got to start thinking about uh, demographic differences. So there's age specific and especially sex specific differences, which anyone who hunts sheep knows full well. That's why most of our seasons don't coincide with the rut because the rams become super susceptible to harvest during the rut. Pre-rut, they're off in their bachelor bands and they're totally different habitat than ewes and lambs might be in. Um, and same with bulls and cows when it comes to elk. So, you know, getting a handle on demographic and age-specific movements, too, is something I'll often chat with um, bios about. And if they have the info, uh, that can be really useful for targeting, you know, just like the papers I just sort of read some excerpts out of, for targeting those those best habitats at the right time of year. Okay. Yeah, I'd love to get into those papers and, like, those ideas of <clears throat> journals and more of that, like, technical literature on the science side. Because, as you mentioned, it's probably an untapped resource for most of us as everyday hunters. 
So can you kind of just give us like a high level on, I mean, you mentioned journal, but what is that? And then you can look at different types of like peer reviewed literature. So can you just kind of give us that primer on the more scientific and technical literature that might exist out there? Yeah, for sure. So I break it down into um, three categories generally, I would say maybe even four, but the fourth one's usually not really worth talking about. Um, So the first and foremost is the one we just talked about. It's peer reviewed or primary literature, it's often called. What peer-reviewed means is, for example, when I submit articles for publication, you, you pick a journal. We were talking about the Journal of Wildlife Management earlier, which is sort of the premier wildlife uh, management journal. Um, you send in what's called a manuscript. That manuscript goes off to an editor, an associate editor, and the associate editor then commissions a team of peer reviewers or other scientists that are experts in that field. They anonymously review your manuscript, which I can say is a very, <laughs> uh, can be a very, um, trying process at times because it hurts when a lot of comments come back and they're anonymous and, you know, they kind of tear down what you do, but it's for the good. The idea is that it improves the science, the rigor that, uh, those articles that go out have associated with them as a result. So in science, everything we cite and everything we talk about is peer reviewed literature, primary literature, with the exception of what's called gray literature. And gray literature is, um, reports that come out of scientific endeavors but aren't peer-reviewed so that's things like government reports for example the you know summary you mentioned from colorado and you know whatever management plans or other types of technical reports state agencies or federal agencies put out those are sort of gray uh, gray literature um, type things and then secondary literature is uh articles that you know you often see uh like hunting magazines or uh other types of magazines or whatever it might be summarizing primary uh, research so I pulled up an example of one, and we can talk about this one a little bit more. Um, it was just a cool article that came out uh, a couple years ago here in Alberta by a, a colleague who researches at the University of Alberta. Um, and it was the title here of this article is Older Female Elk Virtually Bulletproof as They Learn to Avoid Hunters. And so this article goes on to summarize all the findings of this study. You have to be really careful because you have here is this author summarizing something that a scientist found. And it's not been peer-reviewed. It's not making sure that it's lining up with what was actually written in the article. They do a good job in this one. They actually link over to the primary literature article itself. And so you can go and read it. And it happens to be in an open source journal, in fact, in this case. So you can actually go make sure the things they're talking about are accurate. Um, But that's the real difference between those sort of three levels of literature that are out there. The peer-reviewed is definitely, you know, the most rigorous one. There's a lot that goes into every single article that gets pumped out there. Um, and then the gray is, is still, you know, I'd call it trustworthy. Um, I wouldn't worry so much about checking the info on those. I usually take them for what they're worth. And then the secondary literature, I always make sure I go and look closer when I'm reading that kind of information. Take a look at, you know, as a scientist especially, I go look at the information they're citing and make sure it's actually what was found in that paper. Hmm. So that secondary is kind of like an interpretation of the source or like the data, if you will. You got it. Yeah. I mean, it's an interpretation of the interpretation because, you know, there's an interpretation in the peer reviewed article and they're then highlighting, you know, picking out the things that make good sound bites and make good literature for that type of audience. And uh, for sure, you know, they're doing a great, a great service. I don't mean to talk down to these people at all, uh, but you do want to be careful because there's, you know, a lot of examples of misquoted and misinterpreted uh, secondary literature out there. Okay. So can you give us an idea of how a regular guy, uh, Steve and myself who aren't scientists, uh, and our listeners can begin to like tap into some of this stuff. So I, I actually worked in higher ed previously, um, just as staff, not as faculty. So I'm somewhat familiar with like, yeah, there's, you know, pay for use databases and licensing and all that scientific, um, databases essentially. So I know that those exist. Um, I also know that there's some ways to maybe access some of those items. Um, 
so yeah, just give us like, this is a whole new world in terms of getting into peer reviewed literature and primary literature and this science end of things. So where can a guy even begin to look? How should he begin to find some of these resources if he wants to go deep? Yeah, for sure. So if a, a guy or a gal is wanting to look into this kind of information, um, there are those pay-for-use databases out there. I mean, I'm not recommending you go and subscribe to them. They're quite expensive. I have the luxury, of course, of having those three institutions I teach at so I can access them, um, you know, both through my like alma mater institutions where I did my degrees as well as where I'm teaching at currently. Some of them are open source though, and uh, those are great. And there's more and more of a movement towards open source um, journals um, these days. And even some high caliber ones are open source. So first and foremost, I think, you know, assuming you're not using a pay-for-use database, Google is the best place to stop or start. So I go on Google, type in the species, the area, and whatever it is I'm interested in. So, you know, to go back to my early example, example, it was elk habitat use, Idaho. Maybe you want to type autumn or fall to get, you know, a seasonality, but maybe not keep it broad kind of thing. That's going to give you a ton of information, but you're going to get also a mixture of both primary, gray, and secondary. And oftentimes, unless you write something really technical, you'll actually get a lot more um, secondary hits than anything just because the literature that's out there, you know, is overwhelmingly secondary literature on the internet. Uh, One trick you can do is use this thing that some people might not know about called Google Scholar, which is, again, a free service. So if you just go to, I think it's scholar.google.com or .ca here in Canada um, and uh, and hit enter, you know, go to that website, it pulls up a new search bar. And what it's doing then is actually searching in the scholarly literature, which is essentially the gray and peer reviewed minus the secondary and allows you to refine your results as a result too. Uh, you can also get some, a little more fine tooth resolution in terms of the years of the articles you're searching um, when they're published, for example, where they're published, you know, keywords, a little more sort of like fine tooth um, sifting of the information that way. But but really, you know, just going to Google Scholar generally is a great place to start. When you do search like Google Scholar, I'm just on the page here now and I didn't you know, already search this out uh, ahead of us chatting here. I just typed in Elk Habitat Use Idaho again. It provides you with links to each of these articles that have uh, that are related to uh, what we're looking at. So, again, I got those two ones that I mentioned earlier that I got from just regular Google as my first two hits um, because they're, you know, they have the most relevancy. They, you know, they have Idaho elk habitat use throughout them. You know how the general search works on those terms kind of thing. But then there's a whole list of other articles below this, um, like visibility bias during aerial surveys of elk in north central Idaho. You know, that's not really pertinent, I don't think, to scouting um, for hunting per se. That sounds like more of a technical review of a, you know, how we do aerial surveys for population estimation. But there's lots of other examples here that talk about um, various pieces of uh, elk mortality, habitat use, etc. So once you search in there, you get articles that are... Um, that are, you know, hopefully relevant to what you're doing. A lot of them on the right side, there's a column that usually comes up and will actually give you, if there's a full text version for free online, they'll usually give you a direct link to the PDF. And that's the best case scenario. When you get a PDF, you can go in, you're not just stuck looking at the abstract, that executive summary at the stop, start of, the start of the paper, excuse me. You, uh, you can see the figures, you can see the maps, you can see the actual data, which is the most useful part oftentimes for our approach here we're talking about. And uh, that kind of saves you having to go, you know, roundabout and try and find it in another way. Uh, if you get articles that don't have that link, you can just click on, click on their title like you would, you know, for any website you might come across. And when you click on them, you then get taken to the page that the uh, where the journal actually has published the article or houses the article usually. So <laughs> to keep to keep using those examples I talked about, I clicked on the elk habitat selection on Clearwater National Forest, Idaho, and it brings me to the abstract 
uh, at the top and all that information is there um, that I kind of talked about a little bit earlier. It talks about the different ages and sexes of elk and how they use uh, use the landscape. So you can stop there if you get what you need out of the abstract. Um, oftentimes what I'll do if I don't get a full PDF and I'm not you know, using um, a, a database is I just highlight the title and go back and go to regular Google and paste it in there for searching. But I put quotes around it um, on either side. If people don't know when you put quotes around, uh, like double quotes around text in Google or any search engine, typically it only returns results where that exact set of words in that exact format uh, has been used. And so, you you know, you knock off a whole bunch of um, stuff you're not interested in. And so when you do that, you'll get sometimes other places have published that same article, not directly through the journal. Like it's, it's linked to the original journal article. The article is only published in one place technically, but it'll sometimes be posted, I guess is the best word, somewhere else as a full PDF. And you can actually you know, get that information that you want from the rest of the article by going and searching somewhere else um, in that way. So, yeah, that's kind of like, <clears throat> that's kind of where I'd start at. Um, if you don't get what you're after when you're searching in that way, you can go and target specific journals. So two really good ones. Um, the first and foremost is Journal of Fish and Wildlife. Life management. That's an, a journal I've published in a couple times on research I've done on sandhill cranes in uh, eastern North America, <clears throat> and uh, it's open source and it's uh, uh, it's administered by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Actually, so you can just go and click on any article um, in the journal Fish and Wildlife Management and see the whole thing. You can you don't have to go that roundabout way that I just described for if you're looking say at Journal of Wildlife Management. And that's really useful. Um, PLOS one, like P L O S one, people often just call it PLOS uh, one, is an open source, uh, a really high caliber, actually open source journal as well, um, where you can just go search, say with those terms we talked about earlier, and then just type in the journal name after it, and you should just get returns typically from that journal. Um, I think in uh, Google Scholar you can refine. I haven't done that recently, but I think you can refine what journal specifically you're searching in at the same time too, so that it only gives you results from a specific one. I just don't. I don't have that in front of me right now to say for sure, but most databases allow you to refine your searches that way. So you can, in, in essence, you know, ensure you're pretty much only getting um, full source or full text articles that way, which really is much more useful for for a guy who wants to go and you know scroll down to the results section of a paper and look for the maps that show where the tracking. Um, fixes were located uh, for you know an elk or a sheep or whatever it is so if a guy's interested in narrowing down a focus like in a into a region of a state um you know most hunters are obviously thinking of like a unit or a hunting zone but mm -hmm. that those areas won't necessarily line up with how that technical data is presented right so how can they say i don't want to just learn about you know um, elk habitat in Idaho in general, but I want to narrow down this specific area. How can, like, what are some tips on maybe they know what zone or region or unit they want to hunt? How can they find some literature more associated with that area? Should they search by like, like you mentioned Clearwater Forest earlier, like what mm -hmm. types of ways can they narrow that down if this data doesn't obviously refer to hunting units or zones? Yeah, I mean, and sometimes they will because, you know, obviously if they're in uh, management-oriented journals, the, the uh, implications of the data are obviously at the management unit scale. So sometimes you get lucky and they are already that way. If they're not, um, yeah, I think what you suggested is the way I would do it. I would, I would type in um, to my search what it is, the area I'm looking for, and don't get too specific like, you know, Old Bill's Farm or something like that. That's not yeah. going to come up in an article. But if you look at, you know, if you look more specifically um, than just the state, for example, uh, whether it's the national forest level or, or whether it's a county level, um, or oftentimes when the research like this is conducted, it's the the um, interpretation is applied to sort of like an like we call an ecosystem level. So if you're looking at, say, you know, mixed pine forest in Montana, 
well, usually the results will be from or applied to uh, that entire sort of eco uh, ecosystem in that way. So you could kind of consider where you're hunting if it's like, you know, grasslands or if it's the foothills or if it's the mountains or, you know, if you're in the interior or whatever it might be and, and add that in to get a little more resolution. At the end of the day, you, you can't help it if someone hasn't uh, studied in the area specifically you're trying to go to. Well, the next best thing you're going to do is look at comparable data, you know, from somewhere else. So, for example, I said I'm trying to hunt turkeys along the Missouri. I don't need to find the turkey that I'm going to hunt and what it did last year. Um, it can be turkeys that were in that area or it can be turkeys that were in a comparable area somewhere else along the Missouri or maybe some other river uh, like the Milk River a little further north that can give me still that um, insight to their ecology in that spot that I can then take and apply. So, you know, in the tracking data context that I, I mentioned to start off with, that's the best case scenario when you can get polygons that line up exactly with where you want to go hunt or at least roughly where you want to go hunt um i guess the other side that i would uh sort of offer is that uh instead of picking a spot to go hunt uh why not tell it go where the literature tells you which is what i kind of did with sheep scouting uh, i have lots of places you know it's all public land along the eastern slopes here in alberta for the most part i have tons of places i could go hunt just because you know i landed my finger there on a map or i know somebody you know has gone there before but if I really want to use this information we're talking about, then it makes a lot more sense to take a look at the literature first and say, hey, there's good info for this spot. Why don't I go explore there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. great point. What, just some hopeful tips if guys, you know, they go this route, they start looking at journals, but maybe they just get overwhelmed by understanding the technical language and jargon and things like that. I mean, is it, do you have any recommendations other than just firing up Google and trying to figure out what the heck this actually means in plain Jane English? Yeah. Um, I mean, not necessarily, you know, to move away from the, the starting point we discussed of using Google, but I think, you know, practice makes perfect. So I would say first and foremost, like even for someone like me, um, take some, some solace on the fact that I, uh, I still have a hard time uh, at times. I think all scientists do when it's something that's, you know, your discipline, it's someone else's writing and scientific writing is super dense by nature. It's supposed to be succinct, right? So as much of the fluff ever moved as possible. And in one sentence, you could be saying, you know, three important things as it relates to what you're looking at. And it could all be related, but somewhat uh, separate topics or items at least. And so the, <laughs> have some faith that you'll get better at it if you practice a little bit and know that even for, you know, people who, who are well seasoned, it still is a challenge at times to take dense uh, reading and make sense of it. Uh, in terms of practical solutions, aside from that sort of, you know, reassurance is, uh, is yeah, just to break out the, the words in a sentence or in a part of a concept that you're looking at and just go, just search them in, in Google generally. That's, that's what I do. Even like I said, we were talking about mesic soils earlier and I honestly don't know that off the top of my head. I was free balling a little bit there but uh, i'm pretty sure i got it right but uh, if i don't know for sure um yeah i just pop those terms out and throw them into a general google search and it'll explain to you there's so much information on the internet now it'll explain to you what that word means and what they're talking about in that context and you can you know piece it together it takes a little bit of work but i know for me that's you know a lot of the fun of the game a lot of you know a lot of, a lot of times guys get uh, drawn away from um the actual part of the hunt that involves figuring out where to go and what animals are doing. They just want to get out there and, you know, get after something. But for me, that's kind of, I mean, all part and parcel part of the challenge. So I would say just break it down as best you can, um, you know, into pieces and then, yeah, use something just like Google, uh, you know, that's what you're going to have access to at home and, and see what's out there for interpreting that information. Let's talk a little bit more about how you put personally, how you put all this information to use in the field. So things like you mentioned, you have these polygons, you have these areas, you mentioned iHunter or something like Onyx. Um, so when you have like polygon data or spatial data, are you, you like 
specifically using some sort of like KML file, like actually using a data file? Are you just basically looking at their map, pulling up your map and drawing your own, you know, sort of areas like get into some of your process, I would say, of taking data that we've talked about and then putting that into practice? Yeah, so um, the latter, luckily, because explaining the process of, you know, importing KML data gets a little more complicated. Not to say that's over, you know, everybody's head who's listening, but it's just easier not to, to get into the weeds too much. That is an option. But for me, in terms of, you know, the precision with which I need when I'm in the field, yeah, it's simple and simple as taking my app, whichever one I'm using, whether I'm in the U.S. or in Canada, and pulling up an article if I have, say, spatial data and, uh, you know, roughly tracing that line, you know, getting into a close enough scale that I'm making sure the line's roughly in the right spot. But it's not like at the end of the day, I'm going to go out there and, you know, if I'm on one side of my line, according to my GPS versus the other, I'm going to say this is good and this is bad. You know, it's, yeah. it's a it's a continuum. Right. So as long as I got um, a rough sort of spot as to where those data were collected from, um, then I'm good to go. Uh, a big part of it is going out into the field and what I call ground truthing the data. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, we're just we're just starting the scouting process with this sort of approach. The scouting really happens with if you know if you use cameras, for example, I mean getting out there and putting cameras out to truth the data, but also just going out there and walking around. So with sheep hunting, for example, a lot of my time was going out and visiting these sites. And actually, you know, some of these data were 15 years old. So you know, who knows what's changed since then in terms of habitat uh, quality as a result of disturbance or you know whatever. And so a lot of my time was more scouting than actually than hunting. And uh, a lot of that involved first figuring out where to go, but then when I got out there. All I do when I'm walking around is I'm dropping waypoints everywhere. Every time I see tracks, every time I see scat, every time I see a bed up on a talus slope, I'm putting down waypoints that say, yeah, there's sheep here. You can sometimes distinguish ram from you tracks if you get a good print, but it's pretty darn hard. So usually it's just a general sort of there's sheep here, there aren't sheep here. And another layer of complexity there, as I kind of touched on earlier, is, you know, the, the rams and the ewes aren't hanging out at the same time and, or the same place rather in September and October. So that's kind of challenging, but nonetheless and still looking for spots where sheep are and then you know when i'm back from the field or even in the tent at night i'll take a look at um look at my uh, data i've collected and start to kind of look at the landscape i you know i use satellite imagery as my layer i think most guys probably do that too and uh i look at what the habitat is underneath what's the connection to the other pieces around it you know something we often talk about when we're studying wildlife is to try and it sounds kind of silly but like to try and put yourself in that wildlife's eyes what it's what is it looking at what's the scale at which it's interpreting its environment. Is a mountain six peaks away important to a sheep on this peak you're on? Or is it more about the <clears throat> composition of meadows and slopes and proximity to cliffs on that one slope that you're looking at or that hanging valley that you're in? And when you start to do that at a landscape level and look at the information you've collected in compilation with if you have the luxury of you know spatial data from some sort of report, um, you can start to get a really solid understanding of how the animal's using that landscape and then target your your scouting and your hunting really uh, much more appropriately. And, you know, that, that applies beyond that spot. You take it and you extrapolate it, right? You apply it to somewhere else else outside of that spot where you've collected it. And that's really the best way to improve your, you know, your efficiency, really your ability as a scouter and as a hunter um, when you're going to new spots and trying to find new places that, you know, someone else might not look at. You might start seeing patterns on satellite imagery that are just not present to your eye before um, until you start looking and you condition it to the you know, features where you've collected data from, but also where other people have tracked animals and, or at least describe the type of habitat they like to use. So that's one way to use um, those types of data in the field. If you have the spatial stuff, you can do the same thing, you know, remove the, the part of the equation where you have an existing data set of, of where these animals went according to tracking data. Say you just have like what we talked about in 
those abstracts where it says they like this kind of forest, and they like this kind of habitat. You can go um, in most places online and find maps of sort of broad ecological regions or ecozones within a state or a province that show, you know, where the various forest compositions transition as you go up, a, say, an altitudinal gradient, or if you move latitudinally up north and south in a, in a state or province. And you can roughly draw those lines into your app very easily. And, and then you can apply what you've found in an article that talks about that specific part and says, hey, here's all the spots in northwestern Montana or northern Idaho where there's a good mix of Douglas fir and whatever else cedar or something like that, that, that this article says elk are using during the rut and especially older bulls are targeting these types of habitats. And then it can be as simple as going out there and, you know, investing more time proportionally in those spots because, you know, to the average person, they know there's elk here and they've heard there's elk here and maybe they shot an elk here, but they don't have that level of resolution that says there's an elk here because, and you have that advantage if you can use it um, in that way, you know, to apply it to studying things like, I mean, seasonality with migratory species like elk is really important, but also disturbance effects. I don't know if you remember that one paper we talked about earlier on. It said 400 meters was a minimum threshold for how close elk were hanging out around roads. So you can scratch out all of the, you can buffer all of the roads that have usage with 400 meters on either side for places that are likely to hold elk. Do elk go there? Yeah, of course. Do they cross roads? Yeah, I mean, everybody knows that. But for the most part, they're not hanging out in those places. You can target specific food patches that are really important for the animals at given times of year. Um, and you can put those in there as, you know, maybe guys in the East think of like food plots that have been put down. You can think of it in the West of finding natural food plots in the same way that are, you know, disproportionately important to this animal at this time of year and use that as a sp spot to target. Um, with elk, especially once hunting starts up and especially gun hunting, uh, depending what jurisdiction you're in, elk, as everybody knows, who's hunted them become super nocturnal and super sneaky. Uh, they love to go into cover and that can become a really important piece of the equation too. So pieces of habitat that are otherwise super attractive, like a big uh, patch of food that's planted with like a pivot irrigation or something, you know, in an otherwise dry canyon can become totally um, unattractive to an elk as a result of uh, disturbance. So if it's within 400 meters of a road or whatever, even though it looks good, that thing relative to an elk is not that accessible to them. So when you start putting them all together, you're basically doing what we do when we study wildlife habitat use and selection. You're looking at the composite you know, landscape as an animal would see it and sort of distilling those most important things that, um, that they're focusing on. So another one uh, for me, it hasn't been super pertinent. It was kind of important when I hunted down in uh, turkeys down in southwestern Colorado where it can get pretty dry um, as down near like Pagosa Springs and almost over to Durango and in those areas yeah you want to make sure there's water around too you know if you're hunting arid environments which anyone who knows who's hunted the southwest U.S. Um, is really important that's another feature that you want to add into your sort of search criteria when you're looking at the landscape and pairing it up with uh, whatever you collect in the field and also whatever you sort of read uh, from the literature so that, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to have a map. And if you look at my, you know, my iHunter interface for down here in Southwestern Alberta, it's really busy, but uh, I know what all of the, all the waypoints are and polygons are that I've drawn. And each of them, I put a, you know, a very descriptive um, text blurb in with them. It says, I found this from this article or from this spot or in this day, I'll take a picture. You know, if I find a track, I take a picture of it and I save it with each of those waypoints. So I have this catalog of habitat use and I'm, you know, basically doing, science it's you know pseudoscience this way while i'm in the field at the same time collecting those data and then comparing them back to um you know what the literature says or what other people are saying you know if i talk to biologists or uh gun store owners or whatever it might be hmm. yeah i was going to ask so i mean one thing i've noticed over the years of using onyx a lot uh in the field for doing exactly what you described like not necessarily every instance but in a 
most cases documenting sign at some level, right? Whether that's tracks or scat or what have you. But really, I've realized that that's helpful in the field and it's helpful when I review it maybe in the tent that night. But I've wondered what's the best way for me to make that information useful when I look at it a year or two years later. Um, and basically, I was, you know, as you've talked about the science of it, I'm almost thinking I need to make my own abstract, essentially, of all this data that I've collected. And I'm just curious, kind of, I mean, you touched on it, right? You're like you're adding photos, you're adding descriptions, there's some date data there. But outside of that, within the app, are you doing anything to sort of um, those conclusions you're making from maybe even your own personal data points? Are you documenting that or writing that down in any other method? No, I wouldn't say I'm doing any sort of like a concerted fashion. I'm certainly <clears throat> always pulling it all together, but you know, I'd say it's all adaptive. You know, every year I look okay. back at the year before and and pull on that um, what I found the year before, or the week before, whatever it might be, and it just keeps building and building and building. So, I wouldn't say I'm doing any sort of a formal sort of summary, which might not be a bad idea to you know really pull it all together. But that's just not something I've been doing. Gotcha. Yeah, I've just you know, there's a an area I hunted that I have a decent amount of data on that you know, I know it's going to be four or five years between hunts. And I'm thinking this made so much sense in context when I was there, but in four or five years, is it going to make sense? You know, when I come back yeah. to it. So I'm just been thinking on, you know, how to take all of that data that in, in real time begin to make sense and make sure that it, I can understand it later, essentially. Yeah. And you kind of, you know, indirectly hit on an important point that I might have l- overlooked a little bit. I talked about disturbance effects with regards to, you know, human disturbance, but um, another really big one for, especially for Western, uh, Western hunters is a uh, wildfire, you know, wildfire drives succession in forests. And we often think of it as a bad thing and we try and suppress wildfires and rightfully so when they, you know, threaten people's property or livelihoods. Um, but, uh, as far as the wild systems go, those are the natural disturbances that occur and elk as well as, you know, all their ungulates. Most, most people already know this. They respond, uh, quite proximately to those changes because the primary productivity in particular, the forage quality goes up like crazy when a forest burns down and the, the canopy is all interrupted. So, um, you know, yeah, I, I know everybody, most people know, go go up somewhere after there's been a fire because it's usually better. But you can, again, go and look at uh, literature that tells you what the successional stages are. And successional stages are just sort of the, the age categories as a forest regenerates or any you know type of system regenerates after a disturbance. And you can actually get a handle on, you know, okay, this forest fire burned in 2018. That says, this paper says that elk like two-year-old fires or three-year-old fires. I'm going to go hit that as a spot uh, the next year or two years later because that's probably a place that elk are going to be targeting as a result. So um, that that element too for disturbance is really important to consider, and especially in the West where you know we have large-scale wildfires many times, and especially in bad seasons, you get a lot of disturbance that can really open up spots that otherwise you know weren't that good because they're a mature uh, forest that just didn't have a ton of forage. Yeah, so on the fires, that's a great point. Have you Do you have any personal feelings on that? Because on, that's something I've wondered about in terms of when elk tend to prefer to come back to the area after the fire? Is it a year following, three years following? Do you think there's, can you make a conclusion about that? Or do you think it kind of just depends on other factors and might differ um, in different scenarios? Yeah. Uh, well, you might guess uh, what I would do, <laughs> consult the literature. Yeah. Um, I just typed in elk habitat use, fire response. And one of the first articles says sex-specific responses of North American elk to habitat manipulation. And it goes on to describe all the forest communities and how they responded to two and three year old and four year old burns right here in this article. And this actually happens to be an open source article. Luckily, they got a nice map here. 
that shows their stands. They actually did treatments on the landscape. So this is a field experiment where they manipulated fire regimes and uh, then studied elk habitat use, the responses to those changes. So this is open source right here. I'm looking at it. They present something called a selection ratio, which is maybe important to talk about real quick. I don't know, you know if you have to cut this out time-wise or whatever, but um, selection ratios are basically a way in which we can put a number to how much, how attractive a type of habitat is to an animal. So we take on the landscape how much this type of uh, habitat is available and we then look at how much the animal is spending its time in that habitat. If it spends it, its time in that habitat you know, proportionally more than that habitat's available on the landscape, that's called a positive selection where they're actually targeting that type of thing. And if they are selecting it at less than it's available, they're avoiding it. And so we can then use a simple statistic, relatively simple statistic. I mean, there's more complex versions of it, but that's its basic form. And, and then determine, you know, how much an elk actually wants to go to this or that type of patch of habitat. And this, this paper here I'm looking at, it's a 2009 paper, um, does exactly that. They present selection ratios for their control treatments where they didn't burn and then compare them to burn two, like a two-year burn, a three-year burn, a four-year burn, and a five-year burn, both for male and female elk. So your answer is right here. <laughs> I don't have it in the top of my head, but the answer to the question is right here on my computer screen. That's That's a perfect example of like... Yeah. yeah, that's a perfect example. Was that through Google Scholar that you found that? No, regular Google. I typed in regular elk, Google. Habit, yeah, elk habitat use fire response. And the first hit is uh, this article huh. from uh, R.A. Long 2009. Wow. Yeah, so it's out Super there. Super interesting. <laughs> that's what, that's that's awesome. what I'm saying. <laughs> wow. Just to wrap up, man, there's, there's so much in here that I know guys will digest and come back to and put into practice for sure. You've already given us so much information. Uh, just one thing that stood out to me in the conversation you mentioned briefly food sources uh and i'm just curious do you feel like there's much uh data on food sources that people can use maybe species specific or area specific that you know whether it's elk or mule deer or sheep or what have you like from a scientific perspective that they can begin to narrow down like yeah, we know green, right? Like we know forage and browse and we use yeah. those terms generically, but to really understand more in depth um, from the science, what, you know, the species might prefer in a certain area, for example. Yeah. I mean, you know, if we start getting to that level of resolution, it requires a pretty t- good technical knowledge of species that exist out there. You know, we're assuming that uh, a person can go into the field and say, here's the difference between, you know, this buffalo berry and this choke cherry or whatever it is, you know, shrub wise or and even grass is even more complicated. So, you know, I would say that, yes, the, the information's out there. Um, you know, we as scientists definitely make it as specific as possible. And you look at some of these papers, the habitat use, they're going to talk about forest types you know where there's the two predominant species usually used as a label but then when it gets into dietary studies um yeah it's usually broken down into species and composition of diets are you know are derived in many ways they can be done through uh, fecal analysis so collecting uh, feces out in the field and analyzing them but also you know if you get hands on an animal of course doing um a necropsy <clears throat> just did a whole bunch of necropsies to start this week with my second year students on mule deer and you cut open the the rumen the first part of their four-part stomach and you can see essentially exactly what they've been eating so the information's out there. The biologists um, have access to it and certainly publish it. I just you know worry about the application of you know species specific for the average person going out scouting. I would say you know more importantly to focus on um, descriptors of habitat types as it relates to, to forage. So you know shrub versus grass versus tall grass, short grass, medium grass, conifers versus you know some deciduous coming into conifer forest, like that kind of level of res is where I would probably start when I'm targeting 
patches. Um, and actually, you know, in many cases, most of these species we're talking about are pretty generalist. They don't really specialize on, on this one species of grass. And so that's probably what's most appropriate for interpreting, you know, the field, the field information when you're out there in the wild anyways. That's kind of where I would come at it, I think, for the average person. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. That's super helpful. Man, jam-packed with info. I really appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed that one, guys. Don't forget the tight spot and ripcord giveaway going on now in March of 2019. Just go to xomountaingear.com forward slash podcast. And again, if you have any questions for Dr. Everett Hanna or want to get in contact with him, you can catch him on Instagram at drwildlifebio. So Dr. Wildlife Bio on Instagram. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll catch you next week.